of old, you spoke in a vision to your godly one and said, I have granted help to one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. I have found David my servant. With my holy oil I have anointed him, so that my hand shall be established with him. My arm also shall strengthen him. The enemy will not outwit him. The wicked shall not humble him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down those who hate him. My faithfulness and my steadfast love shall be with him, and in my name shall his horn be exalted. Those are verses 19 to 24 of Psalm 89, verses 19 to 52 of which are the psalm appointed for today, Monday, August the 8th, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. We are looking still at <coughs> Judges. Today we're in chapter 12, verses 1 to 7. Also in John's Gospel, chapter 3, verses 1 to 21. And in the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 5, verses 12 to 26. So we're meeting a guy today named Jephthah. Um, I'm going to give you a little bit of backstory on Jephthah. Jephthah was a, a man who was... A, he was the son of a prostitute, and so there's there's not really any certainty as to who his father was. But he was a man of the tribe of Gilead, and so he was. But he was an illegitimate son of Gilead. But he had, and he had been drummed out of that place. But his military prowess won him their acclaim, and when they needed him, they called him back to be their leader. So he has now. They've defeated the Ammonites, and then the men of Ephraim, who were. Um, sort of kin, close kinsmen, were called to arms, and they crossed to Zaphon and said to Jephthah, why did you cross over to fight against the Ammonites and did not call us to go with you? We will burn your house over you with fire. Now, this crossing over, they crossed to Zaphon and said to Japheth, why did you cross over to fight against the Ammonites? So the, the Gileadites were those who decided to remain east of the Jordan River. Remember those tribes that when they came to the land, they said, hey, look, we'd like our inheritance to be over here because these are good grazing lands. And so uh, Moses gave them the ability to do that, but charged them with, you still have to go into the land to fight for your brothers so that they can have their inheritance as well. You don't just get to be given yours without a fight. So this crossing over back and forth has to do with the Jordan River. So the Ephraimites come across the Jordan to Gilead and accuse Jephthah of having gone across the Jordan to fight the Ammonites and not calling them to go out with them. And Jephthah said to them, I and my people had a great dispute with the Ammonites, and when I called you, you did not save me from their hand. And when I saw that you wouldn't save me, I took my life in my hand and crossed over against the Ammonites, and the Lord gave them into my hand. Why then have you come up to me this day to fight against me? He says, look, you didn't come. When I asked you to come and help, you didn't come. So I had to go it alone, and we were successful without you. But why, So now why are you coming to me with a complaint? Then Jephthah gathered all of the men of Gilead and fought with Ephraim, and the men of Gilead struck Ephraim because they said, you are fugitives from Ephraim, you Gileadites, in the midst of Ephraim and Manasseh. So they're accusing them uh, of being false brothers in many ways, that they, they don't actually belong where they are. So that they've, they're accusing them of, of failing to be good Israelites, essentially, is what they're saying here. And the Gileadites captured the fords of the Jordan against the Ephraimites. So the Gileadites Jephthah's group won, 
And when any of the fugitives of Ephraim, so remember they, they, the people from Ephraim accused the Gileadites to, as, of being fugitives from Ephraim. So here, when any of the fugitives of Ephraim, now these are the Ephraimites that, that we're talking about now, whenever one of the fugitives of Ephraim said, let me go over, the men of Gilead said to him, are you an Ephraimite? When he said no, they said to him, then say Shibboleth which means like a rushing stream. And he said, Sibboleth, for he could not pronounce it right. Then they seized him and slaughtered him at the fords of the Jordan. At that time, 42,000 of the Ephraimites fell. Now, that's a huge number. But, but what we've got is it's like there, there, there's different ways. For instance, in Spain, if you're in Barcelona, Barcelona, uh, people from Barcelona pronounce some of their Spanish words differently. And so they would say Barcelona like a TH instead of a C. Um, and so there, there are these pronunciation differences sometimes that can arise. And, and, well, wait a minute. I have a Southern accent. Let's just say it that way. So um, so there would be this pronunciation difference that they would be able to determine, okay, this person is actually not from Gilead because we don't say it the same way. And so it, it, the Ephraimites said things a certain way and the Gileadites said things a certain way. So Sibboleth was the first challenge question that they asked. And if if they said Sibboleth, then they knew that he was truly an Ephraimite, even though he had denied it, and they struck them down at that place. I don't think there's any possibility that they killed 42,000 people at the fords of the Jordan for not being able to say Sibboleth the way I just said it. Um, I'm positive that this refers not only to that those people, but also to those who had been killed in battle. Jephthah judged Israel six years. And then this last sentence of today's lesson is actually not a very good translation. What it says, the ESV says, Then Jephthah the Gileadite died and was buried in his city in Gilead. That is actually not at all the way that should read. What it should read is Jephthah the Gileadite died and was buried in the cities of Gilead. Plural. So Jephthah also has a little more backstory. When he defeated the Ammonites, he made a vow in advance that the first thing that came out of his house when he returned, he was going to sacrifice. And what came out first was not an animal, but it was his daughter. But because of his vow, he felt the need to fulfill that. Now, did God allow human sacrifice there? I mean, it, there, there's, there are those who believe it that, it that he did. But then beginning in about maybe the 12th century, the commentators changed and said, no, he didn't kill her. He just, she had to be a perpetual virgin or he shut her away or something like that. And we just, the honest truth is we don't know. It seemed, would seem really out of character for God to even allow, much less re- require Jephthah to kill his daughter in order to fulfill his vow. But because of that vow, there's this other thing that came up. Because of the language of the verse that I just told you is translated erroneously by the ESV, where it was buried in his city in Gilead. No, he was buried in the cities of Gilead. So what they what they surmise is, is that God caused kind of a wasting disease to come upon Jephthah where his limbs would fall off. And wherever that one fell off, then that piece would be buried there. So that's the way they, they take that translation, uh, the, the right translation, and then use it to, to say, well, how does that happen? How could he be buried in the cities of Gilead that, with more than one place? And so the answer that they come up with is, well, the, the issue is, is that, that pieces of him were buried in these various places around Gilead.
in the gospel lesson today, we've got the story of Nicodemus, and I'm going to say it again. If you haven't watched The Chosen, at least the first season, go back and watch it, because a lot of that season turns around on this very encounter right here. It sets it up, and then they have the encounter, and Nicodemus continues to be around the edges of the group, and it, 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 which is meaning that he is going to be, he's more and more ostracized from his group, the Pharisees. So there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So he's seen enough or learned enough about Jesus to believe that, that he, he, there's something special about him. And the fact that, that Nicodemus receives him and, and, and greets him as rabbi is pretty extraordinary because he's raised the, Jesus up by saying this because otherwise he, he's just an itinerant preacher. But, but Nicodemus does him the honor of referring to him as rabbi and then says, you're a teacher come from God. Because based on what he's either seen or heard, he says, you, you couldn't do the things you do if you weren't from God. So he's not one of those who are attributing the work that Jesus does to Satan. So Nicodemus, I believe, is an honest seeker here. And Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? He said, this doesn't make any sense to me. This language doesn't make any sense. I don't, I don't even get the metaphor that you're trying to use here. It doesn't make any sense to me to be born again. I, I, what does that mean? <clears throat> and so Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Those are two different spheres, two different realms. So the, even though you have breathed into you the Spirit of God for life, there's still something lacking. There, there's a spirit there that's tr truly the Spirit of God, not just for this life, but for eternal life. And so Jesus says, you've got to be born of water and of the Spirit. So what does he mean of water? Um, we take that to mean baptism, that, that he has to be baptized. Because when you talk about being born of water, I mean, what, what happens is, is it looks like water coming out of the mother prior to, to the birth. But here he says, no, you've got to be born of water and of the Spirit. And so we, we take that to mean baptism and then the, the uh, giving of the Spirit. <clears throat> he says, don't marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and when you hear its sound, you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. You, you know it when you see it, but you don't necessarily understand it in a way that allows you to explain it to someone. But you know what you see. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? I don't, I, I don't understand any of this. In spite of the fact that God has said over and over again, I'm going to give you a circumcised heart to replace the stony heart that you have. I'm going to write my laws on your heart. I'm going to do this thing in the latter days about pouring out the Spirit. And so Nicodemus says, how can these things be? And it makes sense to ask that question because the mechanism isn't well described. And Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you don't understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we've seen, but you, y'all, would be a better way to translate that, don't receive our testimony. I'm telling you what I see and what I know, and, and you don't believe these things. If I've told you earthly things and you don't believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? I mean, you're not even prepared for me to begin to teach you about heavenly things. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. 
And as Moses lifted up a serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So he's saying, I came down from heaven. He's making a dramatic claim, and one that, that he wasn't prepared to make generally, because we know that from yesterday's or Saturday's lesson, where it said that he wouldn't entrust himself to anyone because he knew it was in the heart of a man. So here he's actually giving Nicodemus the information that he needs to come to the conclusion here. And and what he says is that he speaks of the Son of Man and then says, like Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him might have eternal life. So it what, what happened with the serpent in the wilderness? They were being attacked by fiery serpents for their sin. And, and then God told Moses to lift up a fiery, lift up a bronze serpent, and anyone who looks on it would be saved. In other words, they would, they would continue to have life. Jesus says, no, here, that, that was true in the wilderness. He said, this is going to be like that. He's using a simile now rather than a metaphor. He's comparing it with something directly. And so he, he's saying that it's like that. And so when you think about the bronze serpent on the, on the stick that Moses holds up, it's going to look like a cross. And Jesus says, so that bronze serpent gave those people life, but they all died in the wilderness anyway. Ultimately, they just didn't die from that. Jesus says, this is more important. This is going to look the same, but it's going to give eternal life. And as I've said multiple times, what, what he's, what, what's the problem in the wilderness? Well, it's serpents, right? So what's the solution? It's the bronze serpent. So now if you look at Jesus' life and you say, okay, what's the problem? The problem is sin. Yeah, let's make it more personal than that. The problem is me. G.K. Chesterton was asked a question. Multiple people were asked this question, and they were invited to respond. And what's the problem in the world? And Chesterton's response was, I am. I'm a sinful man, and I bring these problems into the world. No matter how good a man I'm going to be, I still bring problems into the world because I'm a sinful man. Here, Jesus is saying this is like-like. So bronze serpent solves the problem of serpents. The perfect man solves the problem of sinful man and sinful humanity, and it gives us eternal life, not just the kind of life that sustained them briefly, you know, a little longer in the wilderness— he says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So God loved the world, the cosmon, not just the, the, the Jewish people enough to send his son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. He didn't come in to bring judgment into the world. You're bringing judgment on yourself by rejecting him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. They didn't want to come into the light. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. And Paul goes on and on about that, about doing the things that are done in darkness, not the things that are done in the light. So Jesus is clearly pointing to himself here with Nicodemus in this conversation as the Son of Man, as the only Son of God, the one who has been sent into the world by God himself. So he didn't entrust himself to men, but here he clearly is entrusting himself to Nicodemus and telling him the, quote, messianic secret. 
Whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works may be car- have been carried out in God. Now, there's an irony in those last statements, too, about darkness and light, because the very first thing we're told is, is that this man came to Jesus by night. So you're sneaking around in the shadows and in the darkness, checking it out, seeing what's going on. You don't want other people to know that you're here. So in the epistle, now that many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, a lot of the language we're going to see in this passage today is, is language that's used in the Gospels. And certainly Luke is consciously doing this. He's pointing to the work being done by the apostles at this time as, as um, not just similar to, but an extension of the work that Jesus did when he was on the earth. So they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. So you've got um, the, the, the people are looking at them, but the leaders won't come, and the people won't come either because they've put out the word that you're not supposed to follow these people. But the people nonetheless held them in high esteem, and more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. So they believed so much that this power that was in Jesus was also now in Peter, that they felt like even his shadow could heal people. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. That's what I'm talking about when I say this language is gospel language. This is the stuff that people did, and it's almost verbatim from the gospels what happened. They bring the sick and and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. But the high priest rose up, and also those who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, the people who don't believe in the resurrection at all, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. What, was they, what were they jealous about? Well, the people were esteeming them more highly than they esteemed them. These people don't even believe in the resurrection. And, and here, in the works that the apostles are doing, that the Sadducees are, and the chief priests are not, then they're, they're gaining attention, not only to themselves, but also for resurrection, because it's because of the resurrection that the Holy Spirit can be poured out. During the night, an angel of the Lord appeared, opened the prison doors, and brought them out, and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life, capital L, life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. And so they've been thrown in jail for preaching in the temple. The angel lets them out and says immediately, when you get an opportunity, go back to the temple and do it again. Now, when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. They're going to have another trial, right? But when the officers came, they didn't find him in the prison, so they returned and reported. Quote, we found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Well, there's, there's a little bit of a comparison here between the guards who were guarding these prisoners, these apostles, and the guards who were guarding the tomb. The, the difference is, is that those guards saw what happened, and, and the, the door wasn't locked. The stone had been rolled away, in essence. And here, the angel sets them free in a different kind of way doesn't put them into shock or whatever, and then doesn't leave the doors open to the cells, blah, blah, blah. So there's a similarity here between this and the resurrection. 
Now, when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And, now, and someone came and told them, Look, the men who you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. So they, they did this time. What they did the last time was they, they, they attempted to quell this whole thing, but it didn't work. Because what they, what they were getting witness to was, you're not the ultimate power. You're not actually in control here. You, you feel like you have a measure of control over these people, but clearly you do not. That God is actually in control. And what God has ordained, there's no way you're going to be able to stop. It's, it's the, the powerful thing in all these lessons is to trust God, believe in him, and to do the things that he has led you to do, no matter what the opposition looks like. In the Jephthah case, whether it's the Ammonites or the Ephraimites, didn't make any difference that they're opposing the work of God that was being done. And why they would have opposed them after they had defeated the Ammonites, I have no earthly idea. There's a jealousy there that's going on. Now, we don't have the sense that Nicodemus is jealous at all because he comes and comes very humbly before Jesus, calls him a rabbi. You're a teacher come from God. Nobody could do the signs you do unless God was with him. And so Nicodemus came honestly seeking. The chief priests and the Sadducees here in the, in the Acts lesson didn't. The Ephraimites didn't. They thought maybe it was an opportune time to come and attack Jephthah at the moment that he was. They didn't, they didn't gauge his support very well. Let's start there. But they also didn't gauge the fact that God was with him and clearly had proven that in the defeat of the Ammonites. And instead, their jealousy caused them to make a fatal mistake. So let's not let that happen to us in the church. Let's, let, let, let's celebrate what God's doing through other people and then be content with what he's doing through us.